You're now listening to the Tax Smart REI podcast, your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Today, we're joined with Dylan Brown, and we're going to discuss issues for general partners and limited partners who invest in syndicates and funds. It's going to be a really exciting episode. We're going to break down a lot of the myths, misconceptions, and commonly asked questions from both clients and listeners of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. But before we dive right into that, I do want to highlight what is going on in the Tax Smart REI community. So we recently released our masterclass schedule for the next few months. We're going to be doing a masterclass on the home sale exclusion, which is an exit strategy you can use to minimize taxes when you sell your primary residence. And we're also going to be covering within that masterclass strategies that real estate investors can employ to kind of be able to use it to mix up their primary residence with their investment strategies and all kinds of exciting things you could do within that. We also have Dr. Rachel Gainsborough joining us for a master class on market selection and property selection for short-term rentals. So if you're in the short-term rental game, that's something you're not going to want to miss. That's going to be taking place on August 8th at 12 p.m. Eastern. We also have Trent Hawthorne, who is the co-founder of Rabu. And he's going to be walking us through how to find winning properties using Rabu, which is a free software to analyze short-term rentals. We had his partner, Amir, the CEO, on episode 229. So if you want to go and check that out, that's another masterclass you won't want to miss. And then we have Bill Exeter coming on in September to talk about unraveling the mysteries of the 1031 exchange. So we have an exciting lineup. Um, these all going to be recorded and available for replay if you cannot make it live. If you want to join the TaxSmart Insiders community, it's literally never been a better time to do so. You can go to www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders to start your 30-day free trial. And we'll see you on the inside. One more thing before we dive into the episode. Let's have two new features. One of the features is going to allow you to tap into our brains 24-7 and get answers to your tax-related questions. We've already been testing out this feature, and it's impressive to say the least. So that's going to be coming soon. Another feature that's going to revolutionize the course and bootcamp platform within the TaxSmart Insiders community. So that's going to be another game changer. So if you do want to join www.taxsmartinvestors.com slash insiders. Okay. Without further ado, we're going to dive right into today's episode. Dylan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Can you give our listeners a brief overview of your background, how you kind of got into the world of real estate, private equity tax? Absolutely. Thanks so much, Tom. Yeah. I think just like anybody listening to this show, it all started with a passion for real estate first. So that goes way back. Believe it or not, that goes back to even before high school. I was very young when I found out about real estate, when I found out about things like LoopNet and bigger pockets, and I started just browsing. And I knew there was something special there. I absolutely love the wealth building potential of real estate. So I actually went to college for finance and then added on accounting later because that's when I found out I had a passion for accounting, being a public accountant and working directly with clients. And I thought that would be the perfect segue into real estate. So many people who get into real estate in some way, shape or form, they want to be a syndicator. They want to own property someday. Well, most people start out providing a service. So my service that I chose was being a CPA to real estate minded people. 
I was able to get in with a pretty large firm, a top 10 size firm here in the United States. And I got plugged in with their cost segregation department. And doing that, I learned a lot about real estate, the tax benefits of doing a cost segregation study, for example, which I know we've covered in plenty of other episodes. But then I wanted to take it a step further and see the full cycle of real estate. So that's when I joined the real estate tax team. And that's where I spent three years before coming here to Hall. And while I was there, I developed such a deep passion for understanding economics, helping GPs build out their deals to be in line with the incentives of the LPs and the GPs. What can we do to structure that from a tax perspective? And then layering in finance, because of course, that's where my passions were originally. And I think the two, it's very hard to separate the two. So that's a little bit about me, about where my passion for real estate, especially when it comes to partnership tax comes from. And I think we're going to dive deep into that today. So I'm very excited to do that. We're glad to have you on the team and really excited to dive into what we're going to dive into on today's episode. So I know we have a lot of new listeners always joining the show or listening to the show for the first time, maybe. And then we have people who are investing in all different types of investment strategies, maybe don't always know you know, what real estate private equity is. And many times, you know, syndicates, funds fall into that kind of private equity umbrella. So maybe we could just lay some of the groundwork, some of the terms for people who may not understand what some of these terms are. So what is a syndication? What What is a fund? Yeah, absolutely. So you're you're totally right. The thing about terminology you see in real estate is sometimes it's even geographical and it changes depending on who you're talking to. So it can be very broad, but to answer your question in regards to syndication, it can both be seen as a noun and a verb. You know, the act of raising money could be the act of syndicating, right? But also the term syndication as a noun, when you look at what a syndication really is, typically it has certain connotations to it. So got my friend here. It's the uh, WGNL tax dictionary. I don't know if you've ever seen one of these. <laughs> it's in the flesh. It actually has the definition of a syndication in it. A syndication itself typically has what's known as limited partners who are passively investing. That's what separates it from just a typical partnership. You know, if you think of a real estate partnership between you and me, for example, that wouldn't quite rise to the level of a syndication. But as soon as you go out and you're starting to raise funds from, let's say, 30, 35, 40 investors who are all passively collecting their funds, and then you as the GP, the person in charge of identifying the asset and things of that nature, which we'll touch on, you know, that's when you start to bridge the gap between a just a typical partnership and a syndication. Typically, there's a lot of capital raising and what have you. And there's actually specific rules that relate to syndications, especially when they're allocating losses, which I'm sure we'll touch on here. And when it comes to a fund, similar to a syndication, you can look at it a couple different ways. A fund generally is just a pool of funds that have been collected to invest in certain assets. But more specifically, what you'll oftentimes hear in real estate is a fund can either be open or closed, meaning an open-ended fund is just a pool of money that people can continually make contributions to. The GP continually brings in new funds and finds new assets to deploy those funds into. And maybe a closed fund is one where you just do one or two rounds of capital raising, and then that's it. They're not going to continue adding more money, and then they're going to deploy that right into assets such as real estate and quite frankly, all sorts of assets in in the fund model. So just a high level overview there for you. Gotcha. Gotcha. So just to drill down in the syndicate real quick before we move on. So like a real estate partnership, like you mentioned before, would say just between me and you, that's not a syndicate. But when you have, say, a general partner who's going out and they're handling the entire deal and they're pretty much making that deal go, and then you have limited partners who are just investing money, they're not making decisions. They're not really part of the operations. That's kind of where you get into a syndicate. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. And when you do that, you typically have to face a few certain extra hurdles, especially, like I said before, when you're when you're allocating losses. For example, if there's a syndication with greater than 35 limited partners, limited entrepreneurs who in some way, shape or form, probably through depreciation with a real estate asset, receive losses allocated to them, there are certain rules and regulations that you must follow in terms of reporting and certain requirements you have. And we we maybe won't drill into all of those, but just know that that sort of raises you into a new class of partnership, really known as a syndicate. Gotcha, gotcha. So like long story short here, the general partners, they put the deal together, they make this deal go. They're sometimes called sponsors or syndicators, depending on what circle of people you're talking to. And you have the limited partners or the passive investors, they're putting up the capital, they're investing, but they're not necessarily involved in the decision making or day to day operations. Now that we kind of covered that we got the players set on the table here. Let's kind of move into how people are compensated, how the general partners are compensated in their in their role, and you know how the limited partners are compensated, that type of thing. So for general partners, we know they're compensated with fees and to promote, which is sometimes called carried interest here in the tax world. Could you kind of break down how the different types of income are taxed for general partners specifically? Absolutely. So a quick recap of the types of compensation they're receiving, and then we'll just go over how they're typically taxed. So, you know, if you're a GP or a sponsor, depending on the terminology your location is using or your region is using, you know, you're typically responsible for raising funds, identifying the asset, possibly securing financing. You might have to guarantee a loan or two or conduct some sort of rehab. So all of those things are things that you really should be compensated for. That's the reason you're getting into this business. That is how you're going to make money as a syndicator or as a GP. And quite frankly, the LPs are expecting to pay you for that. That's part of the reason they're investing with you as opposed to doing it on their own. So that's huge. And it's really what the structure should be built around. So to answer your question about how it's taxed, there's really two ways that any sort of these sort of compensation or fees can be structured. And they really can be broken down between just ordinary fees that you and I are probably used to thinking about, you know, I charge you a fee for a service and you pay me cash. It's pretty straightforward. And then the other would be a promote or a carried interest, sometimes known as a profits interest. We're just going to break that down into two buckets. So I'll just start with the fees. Like I said, common fees, acquisition fees, you know, property management fees, they might be asset management fees. You'll oftentimes even see disposition fees. Those are the types of things that are charged by either a manager, which is part of the syndication or one of the affiliated entities. And that'll usually be defined in the operating agreement who it is that's charging the fee. Typically, it's it's going to be an affiliated entity of some sort. And depending on the structure, that could either be paid directly through cash or it could just be a deemed payment, right? It, we'll get into that a little bit here with uh, some of the things that we're going to be discussing. But generally speaking, let's say I'm going to use the example of an acquisition fee. If I was to close on a large multifamily property for $10 million, and we'll just assume that there's no debt, just because I think we'll come back to this example throughout here. Let's just say I'm closing on a large multifamily deal, $10 million. You're my LP and I'm the GP. I might charge you the pool of LP investors. We'll call it that you. Uh, I might charge you an acquisition fee of 5%, which would then come right off the top of that you know, $10 million number, which would come up to $500,000. If I earned that fee on day one, it could either be paid out to me directly or it could be paid out directly to me and then I may reinvest it as an LP, for example. Those are typically taxed as ordinary income. 
if you're at the highest tax rate, that's a 37% tax rate plus whatever your state is. And depending on the entity structure, that could also be subject to self-employment tax. These are the types of things that we see it as more of the compensation. And, and it really is when you receive that cash, it's taxable on day one. So we can dive into that a little bit, but then I'll cover a little bit about the promote too, which is it's starkly different because the promote is not a fee that's charged up front or it's paid out in cash. Really, it's it's more of an alignment of incentives between the LP and the GP that's based on splitting the upside in some way, right? So you may allocate a percentage, call it a 20%, 30%, we'll call it a split. And what that really is, is you're creating a new ownership class within a syndication or a partnership that that ownership class is entitled to some of the upside when you go to sell, or if it's very profitable along the way, some of the upside after you pay back those LPs, right? That's typically the kind of language we're seeing. And those types of things, there are ways to strategically structure that so that rather than it being subject to the highest ordinary tax rate, you actually may be able to structure that so that it's subject to only the capital gains tax rate. And we'll get into the weeds here a little bit on that. But really what that means for the GP is that let's say on the same example of the $10 million building, we appreciate over the course of three years, right? And now we're going to sell it for 12 million or $14 million. And my split was some percentage of that. I would potentially receive a distribution upon liquidation that would just be considered a long-term capital gain, which as we might know, as our listeners might know, 20% is the highest rate for a long-term capital gain, as opposed to the 37% highest rate for ordinary tax or ordinary income rate. And uh, typically speaking, that would not be subject to self-employment tax. Gotcha, gotcha. That's awesome. That's an awesome breakdown. Um, so basically, like I guess to look at it another way, like a fee, you're, you're, it's just like you mentioned, it's just the amount of money you're receiving for almost like a service that you're providing, ordinary income taxes. Whereas, like the promotes like a share of the deal, a share of the upside that you're getting, not necessarily for cash, but it's like another form of compensation for being the general partner and operating the deal and going through all this it also aligns incentives with the LPs because if for the GPs to really maximize their promote, right, or their carried interest, they have to maximize the profitability of the deal, which is in the best interest, typically speaking, of the limited partners. Absolutely. You nailed it. And one thing that came out as it relates to carried interest, because this is something that the IRS is privy to, right? They're always looking at this sort of thing. And same with the congressional intent and the legislation. I mean, Everybody can kind of see, especially when it comes to hedge funds and private equity and these large real estate developers, that this was somewhat of a loophole to be able to shift what sometimes could be considered earned income to a long-term capital gain. That's when Section 1061 comes in. Basically, what 1061 says is if you as a syndicator or a GP holds an interest in a carry interest or has some sort of profits interest that you hold for less than three years... What happens when you liquidate is that long-term capital gain can be recategorized to ordinary income. However, luckily for many of our real estate listeners, there's actually a carve-out that precludes real estate activities from that treatment. So that's really good news for our syndicators who are listening in because many times syndications might have a hold period of less than three years. However, there's that exception to Section 1061 that still allows for that long-term capital gain treatment of their carried interest, which is a huge carve out for real estate as we see all throughout the internal revenue code. 
Yeah, Internal Revenue Code loves to incentivize, provide incentives for people who get involved in real estate. So real estate, if you're listening to this show, you're involved in real estate, like we always say, just by investing in real estate in and of itself, you're already in many cases putting yourself in an advantageous tax position. So as we know, we're always trying to minimize taxes. So you mentioned before that the fees, like the acquisition (laughs) fee, for example, we're always trying to reduce taxes on that. How can general partners, because you know the acquisition fees is subject to ordinary income tax rates, potentially self-employment tax, how can general partners potentially minimize their exposure or perhaps defer their exposure to the taxes on the acquisition fee? Right on. I'm going to use an example. I'm going to come back to that same example because I think it'll be really valuable to illustrate for listeners. But the first rule of thumb that I'll cover, typically speaking, if you truly do want to take the cash let's say you earned the fee, the acquisition fee. In our example, it was $500,000 based on 5% of that $10 million hypothetical apartment. If you want to take that $500,000 and put it in your pocket and go buy a yacht, unfortunately, there's not a lot of options for you to be able to structure it so that you're not paying ordinary income tax on that or or some sort of self-employment tax. However, what we'll find across our client base, across the industry, is more often than not, Their intention is actually to take that acquisition fee and reinvest it into the deal. That helps them because they get a a slice of the pie. They get more of the upside because they're participating in the deal as an LP. And optically, quite frankly, it really helps the LPs, the other LPs in the deal, to see that they have some skin in the game. That really does help optically in that sense. So to the extent that a syndicator or a GP is planning on taking some form of fee and reinvesting it in the deal, that's when you might be able to tap into some more strategic ways to structure this. So really what I'm talking about at the easiest and basic level is going to be a profits interest or some sort of carried interest modification that basically converts the character of that fee that they've earned into a carried interest of some sort. So let me walk you through that example that we had before. Let's say in our hypothetical example, our syndicator just earned the $500,000 fee plans to take the 400,000 of that fee and reinvest it in the deal and 100,000 of it and take it out of the business and go buy a new Porsche with it. Well, as I mentioned before, the portion of that fee that is the $100,000 portion that is taken out in cash, we're not going to be able to do too much with that in terms of structuring, but that $400,000 portion, we might be able to make an argument that there's a new class of ownership in the syndication that actually as opposed to calling it a $400,000 acquisition fee, is really just a $400,000 profits interest. There are ways to structure that, that do actually change the economics slightly, but if done properly, will yield a tax benefit for the syndicator because of the rate arbitrage. What I mean by that is the difference between the capital gain rate and the ordinary tax rate. And so basically, when we're looking at this, the syndicator is taking income that would be ordinary income today, subject to that self-employment tax, perhaps, and they're putting it back into the deal via a profits interest or a, another form of promote or carried interest and deferring that tax later on and potentially not only deferring the tax, but also perhaps getting it at a lower rate or more favorable rate than they would have had they just took the acquisition fee as cash in the beginning of the deal. That's exactly right. There is one key difference that we've got to point out to listeners because, of course, if it was this easy, everybody would be doing it. What's the downside? Well, the difference between this and actually earning the acquisition fee on the front end is once you turn it into some sort of profits interest, you have to prove that there's some sort of risk. Some entrepreneurial risk is usually the term you'll hear associated with this. 
So essentially what I'm what I'm saying is you would need to structure it in such a way that doesn't guarantee the receipt of that $400,000 on day one. Otherwise, if you have guaranteed receipt of that $400,000, it's basically considered what's known as constructive receipt today. And you're in the same spot as you were before, and you really just elected to reinvest that. So one way that you can do this is as opposed to structuring it so that you're entitled to that amount today, what you can do is you can say that basically all of the funds that you raised from LPs has to be returned first. And then the next $400,000 of upside when you go to sell, call it three to five years from now, that first $400,000 does go back to you in the form of a carried interest. And then after that, the additional upside above and beyond that will just go and revert back to the split arrangement that was already in place. And that exact arrangement has a couple different terms that are usually associated with it. Some people call it a GP catch-up and a few people call it a supercharged profits interest, which I think is a really fun way to put it because of the way it sounds. But typically speaking, that is the kind of steps that you'd have to go through and the things that you have to keep in mind. If you really do want to defer to the back end of the deal and also get the benefit of capital gains treatment, you do have to stomach the difference in economics that that would represent because that's the difference on day one. Let's say you bought the building for $10 million today, and then tomorrow we decided to sell it for $10 million. In scenario one, where we pick up the full $500,000 of acquisition fee and reinvest $400,000 of it, then on day two, when we go to sell, we should get that $400,000 right back. That's kind of the litmus test you have to run in your head. If you can get it back the next day because of the way the deal is structured, you probably just picked up income. So for listeners, that's pretty cool rule of thumb that we can continue to use. It kind of sounds like this also incentive aligns, further aligns the incentive between the GP and the LP. Because if the GP really wants that acquisition fee, that deferred acquisition fee in the way you just mentioned it was structured, they have to perform and the deal has to perform. So that's good for the LPs too. Absolutely. And quite frankly, in the perspective from the LP side, they might even be willing to pay a higher fee if it's aligned with their incentives. So maybe they'd be agreeing to a $600,000 fee as opposed to a $400,000 fee with the knowledge that they actually have to earn that appreciation as opposed to pay it out of their pocket today. That is something that happens in the market. And it's also worth considering and could even factor into whether or not it is uh, this is something that the syndicator would want to do. You know, interesting stuff, interesting stuff. So we have some other topics for GPs here today. We come across this a lot. And like, it, it's a lot of situations where you have maybe a real estate investor who owns a large building, or they own like a large apartment building, whatever the case may be, they've owned it for a while, and they want to do a 1031 exchange, but they don't want to be actively involved anymore, right? And we know here, we've talked about this on the show before, you can't 1031 exchange a piece of real property for a partnership interest, you have to exchange real property for real property, which means you can't 1031 exchange your apartment building that you own directly into a syndication with a general partner. And we know people want to do this because they don't want to be actively involved in real estate anymore, right? They want the syndicator to take over that responsibility so they can go and do whatever else they're going to do with their time. But we know that there is a way to make this happen, right? There is a way to actually make this happen where you 1031 exchange from the real property into the real property that the syndicator is actually acquiring themselves. But it's not its not as straightforward as I just mentioned. Would you be able to kind of walk us through what that looks like and maybe talk about the pros and cons of doing such a, a transaction? Absolutely. So you're right on the money. It's worth reiterating. A syndication is not real property, even though it contains real property. And that's because if you were to 1031 exchange from owning real property into a syndication, you're not directly receiving 
the real property. You're just receiving a partnership interest because most syndications, they're structured as a partnership, right? And so that is worth reiterating. And the way around that is how do you solve for that? Well, you have to somehow consider whatever asset that the syndicator is acquiring to be real property for that exchanger to come in and say they actually did exchange real property. The one way that is possible is through what's known as a tenancy in common. So for a little bit of background here, a tenancy in common is a structure similar to a partnership, but definitely not a partnership, specifically not a partnership, actually. That's the argument we're making, right? So a tenancy in common in reality is a joint ownership of real estate, but it's direct joint ownership. So if you and I, me and Thomas Costelli were to start a tenancy in common today, and we were to go buy 123 Main Street, the deed for 123 Main Street, it wouldn't say Brown Costelli LLC as a single owner. It would say Thomas Costelli owns it directly and Dylan Brown owns it directly. And we both have an undivided interest in that property. Now that's starkly different. And that from a legal perspective, is not an entity in and of itself. It's two separate entities owning an undivided interest in said real estate. So when we're looking at a tenancy in common, it sounds great on its surface because that seems like the one way that you could turn what would normally be considered a partnership into real property. But therein lies the problem because as a syndication, the way that the business is run quite often, legally, something might be a tenancy in common, but the IRS might not quite see it that way. So whenever you're planning on implementing a tenancy in common structure, shortened to a tick structure is what most people usually call it, the IRS is going to scrutinize the activity of that tenancy in common to make sure it's not acting like a partnership because What's known as RevProc 2002-22 outlines 15 attributes that the IRS will look at whenever they're analyzing whether or not a tenancy in common should actually be deemed a partnership for tax purposes. They go through a painstaking list of various things that would indicate a partnership or a business activity that would, even though it's considered a tenancy in common for legal purposes, would actually be considered a partnership for tax purposes. And that is exactly what we're trying to avoid whenever we implement this sort of structure to accommodate a 1031 investor. Got it. Got it. So it's definitely more complex than meets the eye. It's not something that you see people doing willy-nilly. It's it's very intricate. And I, I've I've actually been through this with a few clients. And you know, it's from what we've kind of gathered, it tends to make sense with very large properties from very large investors. Doesn't really make sense to do on, say, a single family home. Would you would you say that's about accurate or I would say that's totally accurate. I've actually sort of been starting to use a rule of thumb to give people an idea of when you might start considering bringing on 1031 investors and implementing a tick structure. And quite honestly, what I've been telling people is if somebody has a 1031 exchange where they're able to contribute more than a million dollars of equity, it might be worth bending over backwards to set up a tick structure and involve them. But quite frankly, below that, it becomes a very tough calculation of weighing the benefits versus the burdens of reporting and the potential pitfalls and all of the extra loops that you have to jump through in order to make it happen. And before we wrap up the tick discussion, I did want to highlight two separate things that seem to pop out the most whenever you have a tick in a syndication that tends to cause the most issues. And the first is whenever the IRS is looking at a tick structure, they're looking to see that every single owner of that tick structure is actively participating and making management decisions 
over the property, which the very nature of a syndication, as you know, the syndication strives to make a passive investment for those LPs. So as soon as you have a tick member who isn't contributing their fair share to the business, you could very well run into problems. So that's certainly one of the first areas we run into problems whenever you have a tick structure and a 1031 investor coming into a syndication. And the second, almost more complex problem is how do you deal with then a waterfall structure, which is just the distribution structure that typically takes place in a syndication that we already discussed a little bit with the promote and aligning interests. Because one thing about a tenancy in common is that contributions and distributions from a tick, they must be pro rata. And what that means is they must follow exactly the percentage of ownership that every tick member has. And we know that that's not the case typically in a syndication because the GP is entitled to certain promote distributions that other LPs are not. And so that very quickly skews the economics for the syndicator. Quite honestly, sometimes you might bring on a 1031 investor and they might get a better deal than the other LPs because they might be entitled to more of the distributions than the other LPs simply because of the tick structure. There's ways that you can solve that, but it becomes very complex and it does require planning sometimes a year in advance to actually making this transaction happen in order to properly structure it for all the tick owners. Got it. Got it. Thanks for breaking that down because I know we get a lot of questions on that. A lot of people explore that strategy just to realize that it doesn't always make sense. So hopefully that helps people uh, save some people some tax and, and legal fees trying to uh, go down that rabbit hole where it may not make sense. But also, when it does make sense, you'll know when it does. So we got one or two more things here for general partners before we dive into the LP kind of side of things. So oftentimes, right, we all know that bonus depreciation is quite powerful. And sometimes people invest in syndicates in order to get bonus depreciation so that they can use it to offset income or gains from other passive activities, including other pieces of rental real estate, whether it be another syndicate or a property they own directly. And sometimes within syndicates, the bonus depreciation or depreciation just in general is allocated or it can be allocated in all different ways and not always necessarily based on ownership interest. So could we kind of get a little bit into how that works, why someone would want to do that, and just kind of go through what that looks like? Absolutely. So you're hovering right over some of the topics that have the most debate when it comes to partnerships and syndications. These are the types of things that tax attorneys and CPAs will go back and forth on. And quite honestly, sometimes it feels like there's a few different opinions out in the marketplace. We can start from the very top here and kind of break down what it is that we're talking about. First and foremost, it's very important to understand how flexible partnerships are in their ability to allocate items of income and loss and credits, deductions, distributions, contributions. All of that is very fluid in a partnership, unlike corporation, which is very rigid. So that is one of the reasons that many of our investors that are listening and many of our syndicators that are listening are attracted to partnerships because it allows for all of the other things that we've already discussed. And one of those things that you just mentioned is the ability to allocate depreciation in and among partners in a way that is agreed upon in the operating agreement, right? One thing that many people overlook, though, who don't really have a deep technical background in partnership taxation is the concept of substantial economic effect. This is something that you could quite honestly have several podcasts on all on its own. So I'll just try to give a quick, broad overview of what it really means to have substantial economic effect. Basically, under code section 704 of subchapter K in the Internal Revenue Code, 
any partnership that is making an allocation. And what I mean by making an allocation would be a very good example would be of depreciation or income in general or net income, whatever that box on your K1, as the LP says, is your income for the year. That's what I mean by making an allocation. Anytime a partnership makes an allocation, it must have substantial economic effect, which means simply if you receive an allocation as a partner, that allocation should closely match the economics that you would be subject to. Even that simplified definition is a little bit hard to wrap your head around. So I'll use an example. And I'm going to use depreciation as an example because we're going to use this $10 million building. And we'll just sort of say that I'm the GP and you're the LP. And right now we're faced with $2 million of tax losses for the year that I have to decide to allocate. And so I didn't contribute any funds, remember, because I'm the GP and you're the LP and you contributed all $10 million of funds. And let's say we wanted to split those losses evenly. Now, what would happen if we sold this tomorrow and we actually did realize $2 million of losses? Odds are I wouldn't be the one who would be taking the burden because I didn't contribute any funds. You were the one who contributed all the funds. So you would actually realize a loss of $2 million. And really what substantial economic effect is telling us is that if that's the case, how could you argue that I should receive any of those allocations of depreciation or loss and you should be able to give them to me? That's really the goalposts that we're talking about with substantial economic effect. And they're very complex and very nuanced, way beyond the scope of today's conversation. So really, in order to allocate depreciation in and among partners, all we have to do with the operating agreement is align those allocations with the economic reality of the deal. So if I didn't contribute any funds to the deal as the GP, and I wanted to receive a million dollar loss allocation of depreciation, quite frankly, I should be willing to take on the burden of that million dollar loss if we were to sell, if that makes sense. So we have to in some way substantiate that I am actually economically on the hook for that. Otherwise, it is very difficult to make those types of allocations. So just from a high level, that really applies to any sort of partnership allocation. And we could go on about this for days, like I said, because substantial economic effect is such a complex part of the code, one of the most complex part of the inter internal revenue code in its entirety. But I hope that just lays the groundwork a little bit. You know, for sure, I could completely agree. We're probably going to have to go ahead and do like a podcast series on that, bring you back on to do that. But kind of the bottom line is it can be done, right? You can allocate depreciation, but there's a lot of rules, a lot of considerations to step through, not something that should be taken lightly. Definitely not something you should be doing yourself, right? You should be working with your CPA as well as your attorney uh, to make sure that everything is structured and in alignment with the intent and how you really want it to go down so that you don't make any mistakes and find yourself you know, on the wrong side of the coin, right? And find yourself in a bad situation. So before we move on to the LP uh, side of the equation here, we work with a lot of general partners, sponsors, syndicators who both run syndicates and funds here at the firm. If a general partner is listening to this and perhaps is interested in working with us, how would they be able to go about doing so? So this is a perfect opportunity for me to plug our brand new partnership launch advisory, because you're absolutely right. We work with all sorts of GPs in all various stages. And one of the most important ways we can add value is right at the outset, when we're starting a new syndication, a new deal, and we want to look at the operating agreement, the private placement memorandums, and we want to really model out what that could look like for all parties involved and make sure we're, we have our eyes looking forward and seeing all the potential pitfalls that we could face with all the things that we just discussed. 
we actually have a brand new partnership launch service. It's a, it's a separate advisory service for those GPs looking for exactly that. And quite frankly, this is a great introduction to our firm because it allows us to show you all the different ways that an advisory service, as opposed to just coming out there and doing a tax prep or just doing what a typical CPA firm might do, it differentiates the experience for everybody involved because a GP, they're in a specific spot where not only do they need to have their own best interests, they have to have the LP's best interests. And if they're going to be having these conversations with their LPs, they need to feel confident that what they're talking about is correct. And then they're not putting their LPs in the wrong direction. So that's where we step in and we really try to educate first. And then we really become a business partner to those syndicators. And that really is what I drive to do. And that's what I'm passionate about. So, I mean, quite honestly, if I was a GP listening to this, I think that's where I would start. So if you're interested in that, you can head over to www.therealestatecpa.com, click the Get Started button to request an initial consultation to learn more about how we can help you and your syndication or fund. All right, so now we're shifting gears a little bit into the world of LPs. I know it's a lot of LPs who listen to this show, and I hope you found everything we just discussed informative, but kind of just want to touch on a few issues that I know are more specific to the limited partners who invest in syndication. So it seems like every time I turn around, right, I'm getting someone coming to me and said that their syndicator said that they take the losses you know, they receive on their K-1 as a limited partner and use it to offset their active income or their non-passive income, such as income from a W-2 job or maybe an active trader business that they're running. And every time I answer this question, I just I want to know where is it coming from? I don't know where, where these people are being told this, but we get this question all the time. So can we clarify kind of how does that work? Can limited partners take losses they receive uh, from investing in syndication and use it to offset their active income? Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, man. I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that from LPs, whether it's on LinkedIn, from clients or anywhere, really. It's crazy the kinds of misconceptions that are out there. But really, it stems from like what you said, a syndicator, they might make a broad statement like my syndication will provide you tax losses. And quite frankly, somewhere along the line, it's lost in translation to be construed as an LP will be able to take those losses to offset their other income. And that's simply just not the case. Right off the bat, we covered how a syndication is really just an, a passive investment for our LPs. They are not participating in any way, shape, or form in these investments, typically speaking. And under code section 469, it's pretty clear that real estate is deemed to be passive regardless. So unless you are qualified as a materially participating real estate professional, which plug many of the several episodes that we've discussed that at length, I mean, we won't discuss that too much here. But generally speaking, unless you're a materially participating real estate professional, you really don't have any standing to be able to take losses from a real estate syndication and offset your other forms of income. The only exception to that is under the regs, section 1.469-9G, there is an election for those who do qualify as a materially participating real estate professional to aggregate all of their real estate activities into one activity and then be able to group them and then take those losses collectively as long as they materially participate in some of those assets or all of those assets to be able to reach those material participation standards. But again, that applies to a very small minority of people typically involving uh, themselves in the syndication. So it is a common misconception that we have to face head on and remind people that there is a very, very limited set of circumstances that you'd be able to take any losses from this to offset their income. Hit the nail right on the head, as they say. So another big 
point of confusion that we see from limited partners is the difference between income and distributions. We know when you receive a K-1, you're going to have uh, uh, maybe items listed on a box one or perhaps box two sometimes of income, depending on what type of syndication you're investing in. And then you have distributions as well. And sometimes people wonder like, if I'm receiving distributions, how come I'm not paying tax on my distributions? So could we kind of break that down, the difference between income and distributions from a syndication? Absolutely. So part of this misconception comes from people who are used to thinking about a corporation, because I'd say most people know what a dividend is. If you invest in a stock and you receive a dividend from a corporation that you've invested in, that's taxable. But that's only taxable as a result of it being a corporation. When you flip the script and you start talking about partnerships, it's governed by a totally separate code section in the Internal Revenue Code that looks at it totally differently. A distribution is not considered a dividend in this case, and therefore it's not taxable like a dividend. The difference between a corporation and a partnership is that a partnership is a pass-through entity that simply passes tax onto the partners that invested in the partnership as opposed to paying tax for its own income on its own accord. So what we have is code section 704A, which tells us how those allocations are made. And we talked about that a little bit with our substantial economic before, but generally speaking, a K-1, it takes the total income and loss that actually occurred within a partnership, whether or not it was distributed to the partners, mind you, and reports that and makes sure that it's split among the partners in accordance with the operating agreement. So that is how the taxable income coming from a partnership is determined. It is not through a distribution. Code section 731A1 actually tells us that a distribution is not taxable to the extent that it is not above and beyond a partner's tax basis in that partnership. So that is in and of itself a pretty complex concept. But generally speaking, right then and there, a distribution is simply not taxable. It's, it's what's known as a return of capital. Got it, got it. So there might be situations where you might be receiving distributions or, you know, sometimes what the syndicator will say, quote unquote, cash flow from the deal, but you may not be paying tax on it because really you're paying tax on the income, which is calculated differently. So long story short here, distributions are typically not taxable. There's some cases where they might be, but if you're receiving distributions, just understand that. Another big question from loaded partners is, should I invest in a self-directed IRA? We know there are some pros and cons to investing as a limited partner through a self-directed IRA. So uh, could we kind of just break it down, what that looks like, and then we can discuss you know, whether or not it makes sense to do and, and maybe in what circumstances? Because I know I have a point of view on it. I know you have a point of view on it. Uh, so maybe we could just discuss that after we kind of lay the groundwork for it. Absolutely. So just as a recap, a self-directed IRA is just like any IRA, but you've actually gone to a custodian and made an election to be able to control the assets a little bit more and invest them into alternative assets, as opposed to just like, I've personally got an IRA through Vanguard that I just throw in the S&P 500. That's starkly different than a self-directed IRA. So um, another term that people use is a pocketbook or a checkbook IRA or things like that. And quite honestly, it's all referring to the same thing. A self-directed IRA, it has plenty of benefits when it comes to tax benefits, obviously the typical benefits of an IRA, but there are some certain pitfalls that you want to watch out for if you're going to start getting into real estate within an IRA. And part of that is what's known as UBTI or unrelated business taxable income. This is a form of taxable income that applies to tax exempt entities such as an IRA if they invest in certain business activities and those business activities and in, in generate income. You might actually be subject to tax through an IRA, even though it's through an IRA. You typically think there would be 
tax-free earnings. But in those specific cases where you're investing in certain assets to generate income subject to the UBTI, then you might actually face a taxable situation. Luckily, rental is actually an exception to UBTI. But just like most things in tax, there's an exception to the exception, which is if that rental income comes from an asset that is leveraged, you're actually subject to UDFI, unrelated debt financed income, which then pulls it back into being taxable. So you pretty much have to follow this little flowchart of is it taxable? Is it not taxable? Oh, wait, no, it is taxable because we use debt to acquire the asset. And that's sometimes something that investors who use their self-directed IRA might not be aware of. And one of the major reasons that they're not aware of this is because syndicators simply aren't talking about it. They're going out to market knowing that most investors have a large capital pool in an IRA. So it might sound good for them to be able to trigger a self-directed IRA and then take those funds and invest it into alternative assets. But really, that's just a mechanism that's caused by the fact that they've got a lot of capital that they can invest. So of course, a syndicator would like that. There's also some other nuances there, but I want to open that up back to you for any questions. You know, that makes total sense. So basically, when you say you invest in an ETF, it's not a financial advice, everybody. We're just going to draw some comparisons here, have a conversation. So if you invest in through a self-directed IRA, you put in an ETF, let's just call it the S&P 500, right? The dividends, any capital gains, if you were to sell it within the IRA, typically are not going to be taxable, right? It's going to be tax-free within the IRA. But now if you self-direct your IRA and you invested in certain assets like Dylan was describing, you know, in many cases for people who come to our world, it's rental real estate. Typically rental real estate's financed with a mortgage. So you have debt on it. You might be subject to some taxes. So that's kind of like one tax downside is you're you're making it a little bit more complicated. You might be subjecting yourself to tax. I think the other side of the equation also though is that real estate's already very much a tax advantaged asset class. And what I mean by that specifically is if you go and buy a rental property or you invested a syndicate in a non-IRA account in in this case, right? You're already going to be receiving substantial tax benefits from depreciation that could help offset the potential income and perhaps the gains down the line. There's all types of other strategies that we've talked about here on the show that makes real estate, owning real estate as an individual or a partnership outside of these accounts really powerful. So kind of like in, in these situations, right? Clearly, there there's some hair on using a self-directed IRA, but I don't want to just straight out dismiss this potential way to invest in real estate. So in what situations would you say it would not make sense to invest in real estate through a self-directed IRA? I think the main thing that I would say to anybody who has that same question would be, if you've got a lot of extra capital that's just outside of the IRA that you don't really have a use for at this point, you may consider instead of making the investment in the real estate through the IRA, you might consider making it outside of the IRA to tap into all those other benefits that we've discussed in terms of the potential. It's not likely, but the potential to be able to offset other income or use those you know, passive activity losses to offset other passive activity income if you have that going on in your specific situation. And then on the flip side, maybe you don't have too much capital outside of your IRA. There are some instances where it doesn't necessarily make it a bad idea to invest through your IRA because maybe you have no other means to invest in real estate. Or maybe, you know, as they always say, don't let the tax tail wag the dog. If you see an asset out there that is going to yield very well, so well that it offsets any potential tax burdens that you might face, why would you avoid that asset simply because of the tax, right? So even if you're not willing to stomach the uh, UBTI or UDFI conversation with your tax advisor, maybe it's worth going over that hurdle and pulling the trigger on a self-directed IRA because that's where your funds are. 
and you see a really great opportunity to invest in alternative asset. So it really is, it is a one-off conversation that you should be having with an advisor. Just know that there are so many pitfalls that come with it that you should be prepared to ask and quite frankly, quiz your advisor to make sure that they're on the same page and actually understand the nuance. Right, right. For sure. For sure. I just, yeah, I, I have a very similar view. Um, I used to work with a lot of clients who who always ask me this question. And the way I look at it is this, this is not financial advice. Please speak to your own advisors about your specific situation. But in general, some clients, right, they have all their money in the stock market and they want to diversify out, uh, you know, diversify out solely the stock market. I would rather see someone self-direct an IRA and go invest in real estate despite all maybe the drawbacks of investing in a self-directed IRA rather than liquidate their IRA pay, you know, federal, state, maybe perhaps in some cases local income tax, like if you live in like New York City, and on top of that, the 10% early, which are all penalties. So yeah, in those situations, I, I would prefer to see that happen rather than see someone liquidate their IRA and lose like, you know, 40% of it. That's very hard to make up. Um, however, in general, I do believe that investing in real estate outside of retirement accounts typically makes the most sense if you have the capital to do so. Additionally, IRAs are really good vehicles for investing in stocks and ETFs and other financial instruments because those instruments are are you could avoid taxes basically they're tax free within the IRA if you sell them or the dividends all that type of good stuff is not taxable within the IRA so really makes the IRA an ideal vehicle in my opinion for those types of assets whereas real estate's more suited for to be you know held outside of a self-directed retirement account but you know, that's not always the case. And just one last thing, and we're going to wrap this up today. Is there an alternative vehicle? I know we just talked about self-directed IRAs, but is there an alternative vehicle, self-directed retirement account that might be able to help people mitigate their exposure to that UBTI um, or UBIT tax? Yeah, absolutely. So what's known as a solo 401k or 401ks in general that are able to invest in alternative assets, those are the exceptions to the rule. So what are we at? Is that an exception to an exception to an exception? I'm not sure where how many layers of inception. I think this is exception inception. <laughs> a lot. No. So uh, the solo 401k is actually a qualified entity that has a car vote under section 514 that does not subject it to UDFI. So in the terms of just the UDFI and UBTI conversation, solo 401k does have a leg up on a self-directed IRA. Nice. Nice. So we covered a lot in today's episode for general partners and limited partners. I know you post about this all the time on LinkedIn, stuff like that. So if if the listener of the show wanted to hear more about this, where can they find you on LinkedIn? Yeah. So Dylan Brown CPA, that's my LinkedIn handle. You'll find me, just do a quick search and I'm on there every day. I try to post informative information and I make it my goal to empower GPs to have more productive conversations with their LPs and really provide confidence to them when they're going to have these conversations about tricky subjects. There's not a lot of people out there that are really providing free content on this sort of thing. And I think there really should be more. So join me. I mean, I'll be posting every day. Go ahead and give me a follow, connect, and by all means, shoot me a DM because I, I'd be more than happy to have discussions with you directly on all sorts of these topics. If you do want to work with Dylan and our private equity team, uh, you can go ahead to www.therealestatecpa.com, click the Get Started button, and request an initial consultation today, and we'd love to hear from you. So that's it, and we'll catch you on the next episode of the Tax Smart REI Podcast. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. 
We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.